Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Zcash Review, the history of Zcash. I'm Matty Corsell. And I'm Austin Williams. Today in the show, we'll discuss the story behind the creation of Zcash, the importance of privacy, why the Zeroin protocol was never integrated into Bitcoin, and how Zcash eventually evolved into its own blockchain protocol. We're joined by Dr. Matthew Green, Assistant Professor of Computer Science at Johns Hopkins. He has been largely recognized for his work on privacy-enhanced information storage, anonymous payment systems, and cryptographic engineering. Most importantly for our show, he is one of the original creators of the Zeroin protocol from 2013, which aimed to add transactional anonymity on top of Bitcoin. He's also one of the key scientists at the Zcash company, supporting the evolution of the Zcash project. This show is made possible by the support of our sponsor, GPUSource.com. GPUSource provides solutions that allow anyone to mine cryptocurrencies like a pro. Check them out at GPUSource.com. I feel really lucky to have you on the line. Like <laughs> you're you're one of my heroes when it comes in the in the crypto space, and I love reading your stuff. And uh, I'm excited to be able to pick your brain. I often read your articles. I'm like, oh, I wish I could ask him about X, and now I get to. So I'm excited. About oh, thanks. That. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll start off just with the basics. So, uh, what is Zcash? How is it related to Bitcoin? And uh, what's its history? So a few years ago, you know, I, I stumbled across Bitcoin just like I think a lot of other people stumbled across Bitcoin um, <clears throat> as being this thing that, you know, really shouldn't exist, right? It, it, it's an idea or it, it's kind of the culmination of a bunch of ideas that people have had for years about building decentralized electronic cash systems. And nobody had ever done anything practical. So the question was, you know, is there something wrong with these ideas that makes them not work? And so when Bitcoin came along... I think my initial reaction was the same as everybody else. Like this can't possibly, you know, be real. And as I looked into the system and saw that it was actually standing up and holding up against, you know, attacks and, and real world kind of um, events, I was really impressed. And so I started looking for the, the problem and I never found a problem with Bitcoin per se in terms of what it's supposed to do. What what we really did stumble across was the the, the fact that Bitcoin itself doesn't have privacy kind of as a as a trade-off you know to make bitcoin actually into something real that works satoshi nakamoto said well i'm going to make this one sacrifice in terms of of keeping your privacy in terms of what transactions you make and making those all public to the world um and so that seemed like the biggest weakness we saw in bitcoin and we wanted to kind of set out and fix that and i, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to fix it and eventually with my grad students, uh, Ian Myers and Christina Garman, you know, we came across a solution that we thought would actually kind of improve the privacy of, uh, of Bitcoin. And that's, uh, that, that's kind of where all of our work started. Yeah. What did you, what did you discover? Well, I mean, what, what we, we did, we spent a lot of time thinking about different solutions, um, crypto solutions and pseudonymity, which is kind of what Bitcoin already offers. And maybe we could add some noise to things. You know, there we, we thought this is this is going back to 2011, 2012. Um, yeah. You know, we, we thought about ring signatures, which is actually one solution that's out there in some other cryptocurrencies. And we kind of rejected all these ideas because we didn't like them. We didn't we didn't know how to analyze them. We thought, you know, we could make it a little harder to trace people. But making things a little bit harder is not enough. That's not real privacy. Right. And so we kept at it until we found a solution that we thought was really strong. And that was called ZeroCoin. Uh, so I imagine you brought this to the, the Bitcoin space. And what was their response? 
So we, we published this paper and we were super excited. We we're super naive. You know, we thought, wow, we've, we've solved this problem. We have this thing called ZeroCoin. Bitcoin will put it into the software next year and everyone will have privacy and it'll be great. And the Bitcoin people kind of very gently and nicely, you know, were, were super polite to us, kind of like little kids walking up and saying, you know, we've solved, you know, world peace. Um, they, they did not, you know, they clearly were not about to stick our, our really inefficient, really risky new technology into Bitcoin, which was just at that time kind of getting to be credible. Uh, and right. they said, you know, look, this is a great idea. If you can improve it, like by a factor of, you know, 50 and <laughs> test it, you know, maybe someday it would have a place in Bitcoin. And, and so that's where we were. So putting it into Bitcoin proper uh, wasn't going to work. No. Well, and, and what were their main um, criticisms against your initial proposal? So we got two criticisms. One of them was efficiency. I mean, basically the transactions were, you know, something like 40 kilobytes each for zero coin. And that's huge when you think about, you know, even the most complicated Bitcoin transactions rarely get that big. So that was really an obvious problem. And of course, there was, you know, verification time, all sorts of real problems. Um, but the second thing they pointed out, which I thought was really helpful, is somebody, and I'm not sure exactly which core dev said this, but somebody said, look, I can explain Bitcoin to a novice. I, I can explain all the stuff that's in Bitcoin in, a, in an hour. You know, it's some hashing, there's some signatures. I can explain all that stuff. I can't explain zero coin. It uses these zero knowledge proofs. It does all kinds of crazy stuff and I can't explain it to people. And I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah, I could see that, right? Because especially in a, a space that's not governed by a central entity, then you, you would just have to convince the one central entity. But if you're trying to convince everyone, there is at some level you have to deal with a sort of least common denominator right? Uh, sort of communication. That's a very difficult thing to communicate. Yep. So you, were, you worked on this for a while and you found a lot of optimizations and improvements. And that's how, how did you go from zero coin to zero cash? So we ran into some folks, our co-authors on the zero cash paper. We ran into some folks, including Iran Tromer, uh, Ali Ben Sasson, and um, their grad students, Ali Chiesa and Madaris Verza. We ran into these, these guys at a crypto conference. Actually, I think it was at the conference we were presenting zero coin at. And they said, hey, you know, we've got these new techniques if you apply them to ZeroCoin, we could make ZeroCoin 98% faster. That's awesome. We could make the transactions 98% smaller. And so we said, let's go back to the basics and make ZeroCoin into something much better. And that's what we did. But still, even then, you, you, if you took this back to Bitcoin, they still wouldn't uh, – it, it would address their efficiency concerns, but still not their how do we communicate this to the public concerns. Exactly. And so there were actually two two concerns, but that was really a big one. And so, you know, the, the folks, and I want to really stress that the Bitcoin core devs were really awesome to us. I mean, we spoke with Greg Maxwell, you know, we spoke to a whole bunch of people and their advice, I mean, not uniformly, but their advice was, look, go out into the world and prove this works. Uh, and so, you know, we did, we basically said, look, let's make an altcoin and let's test this technology. And if it falls over, it falls over. And if it works, it works. And let's see what happens. The, the people you met, that, that helped you transition from zero coin to zero cash. Was that the, the, the folks from Skipper Labs? Yep, those are the guys. Oh, yep. wonderful. And it's hard. They're, I've been reading a lot of their stuff and they're incredible. Yeah, they're great. I mean, they're really great. And it, it's the only thing that's tricky about them is to say where they're from. They're from all over. I mean, they were mostly at MIT when they did this stuff, but now they're in Israel and Berkeley and all over the place. But yep, they, they basically, you know, we become a team together. So, so just to give you an idea of the history of this, you know, when we started out, we were a bunch of academics and we had this protocol and we had a really crappy pile of code because that's what academics produce is crappy code. And we thought, you know, we'd really like people to use this. And we thought about for a few months doing it ourselves. And I think we made the right decision deciding we couldn't do it. 
And so that's when we found Zuko and kind of things took off from there. And he hired this great engineering team to actually make it happen. None of it would have happened without him and without the, the folks who did it. So, so the great relationship we have is that, you know, we're scientific advisors. I'm a scientist. I can write papers. And so the multi-party parameter generation is a great example of that. So I go off, I do research with my colleagues. We write a paper and then a few months later, we sit down and I get to basically talk with the engineers at Zcash and say, okay, here's how we make this happen. And Sean and these other guys, you know, write the code that's really good production quality code. We, inter we, inter we interact and it works. And so this has been the relationship is I'm not writing code, but I'm like closely talking to the engineers there whenever, you know, I can help. And the same thing with Bolt. So we have the system, we write a paper about Bolt and then, uh, you know, hopefully we won't be the folks actually writing the code, but we're working really closely to try to get it implemented into the system. So th that's been my relationship is not writing code, not, you know, going out and doing what Zuko does, which is, you know, talking to people about Zcash, but just trying to do new science and, um, you know, improve the ecosystem, and, but actually get it into the system and get people to use it. That's fantastic. So for listeners who, who may not know about zero-knowledge proofs, I was wondering if you, you could explain as best you could what zero-knowledge proofs are, uh, what makes them so interesting and fascinating, and if you want, you could maybe explain the difference between uh, interactive zero-knowledge and, and non-interactive sure. zero-knowledge proofs. So zero-knowledge proofs are one of the coolest things in cryptography. I mean, like crypto, when people think about crypto, they mostly think about like encrypting messages. They think about signing things maybe, and that's kind of all they think about. But zero-knowledge proofs are where crypto gets really interesting. So the basic idea of a zero-knowledge proof is let's say that I want to prove to you that I ran a program, that I, you know, I ran a program on some input, and this is the output of that program. Normally, you know, what I could do is I could give you all the inputs I fed into the program, and you could run it yourself, and you could check. And that's kind of how you know systems like Ethereum and Bitcoin work is everybody knows everything that goes into a transaction. They can run the verification program and then they can see what comes out and check to see that's what's on the blockchain. But zero knowledge proofs turn that around. They basically say, let's say I want to prove to you that this is actually the correct result of a computation, but I don't want to give you the inputs that I computed on. And there's a lot of reasons why you might want to do this. Let's say that I want to prove to you that I know my password uh, and that it's, you know, correctly matches some hash or something like that. I could do that. You know, let's say that I want to prove to you that I have, you know, um, money in the bank, but I don't want to tell you how much money in the bank, like at least a million dollars, but I don't want to tell you exactly how much. You know, I could do that. So zero knowledge proofs let me basically prove to you that these statements are true without giving you any more information than that one bit, which is, yes, it's true. But at the same time, you know that I can't possibly be lying to you. And so there's two kinds of um, two kinds of zero knowledge proofs. The very very earliest ones were interactive, where basically you and I would have to talk. And so you would I would give you some information, you would like challenge me on something, and then I would give you a response. And we might have to even do this a bunch of times. And at the end of that, you would be convinced that I was really telling the truth. But non-interactive zero knowledge proofs are basically one shot. I can give you the output of the program that I ran, and I could give you this relatively small proof that it's correct and you can verify that everything is right and I don't have to go back and forth with you. And that's really essential for something like a blockchain where I'm sending in a transaction. I'm saying, look, this transaction is a valid transaction. I'm not going to tell you, you know, what the input transactions were or how much money was actually processed here, but you know it's valid according to the Bitcoin transaction rules and here is a proof you can verify and everyone can verify it without interacting with me after that one trans transaction is sent. So you have this, this uh, ability to prove something to another person without having to interact with them. So you don't need a, it's not an interactive protocol. And 
uh, yeah, like the, it's a one-shot zero-knowledge proof. What's the relationship between non-interactive zero-knowledge proofs and, and ZK snarks? How, how do those relate to each other? Okay, so the basic idea is every time I spend money, every time that I make a Bitcoin, a normal Bitcoin transaction, what I'm really doing is I'm proving to you that I took in some input transactions and then I produced some output transactions and the total amount of money is preserved, right? I'm not, I'm not creating more money than I'm spending, than, than I took in. So that's really what's essential to Bitcoin, otherwise you have inflation. But the problem is with Bitcoin, the way I do that is I tell the entire world, you know, here are the input transactions I'm taking in, here's how much money is in them, and here's the output transaction, here's who I'm spending to, and here's how much I'm paying them. And that's really the privacy problem with Bitcoin, is that if people can figure out who those addresses map to, they know an enormous amount about you. And this is actually becoming a big problem because, you know, now that we have, for example, companies like Coinbase being forced potentially to turn over their entire database of who owns those addresses, you have companies that can actually start mapping those transactions, you know, into creating basically chains of transactions saying, oh, I know who this person is. They paid this person. Now I can try to guess who that person is. And eventually you get these companies that can basically de-anonymize the entire Bitcoin transaction graph. And that's what's scary. Um, what ZK Snarks let us do is they let us do that exact same process. But let's say instead of just giving you the input transactions, I give you an encrypted version, a, a ciphertext that encrypts those input transactions and the amounts. And I give you a ciphertext that encrypts the output transactions and the amounts. And I put that on the blockchain. Nobody can read that information. It's opaque to them. There's no information that the public can see. But of course, I need to prove to you that everything in those inputs and outputs makes sense. I'm not creating money. I'm not cheating. And what the ZK Snark does is it lets me prove that the amounts coming in sum up to be greater uh, or equal to the amounts going out. And anyone can verify that ZK Snark without actually seeing what's in those encrypted transactions. And I know that other people have been trying to achieve certain levels of, of anonymity, transaction anonymity in, in, in Bitcoin proper. My understanding is that the, the best two things we have, we have you know, CoinJoin, we have essentially mixing services, whether they're decentralized and trustless or, or centralized and, and requiring trust, or we have uh, possibly in the future confidential transactions. And I was wondering if you could speak to how ZK Snarks are, are different, at least in as much as how, what they provide to the user seeking anonymity that maybe isn't provided by the combination of CoinJoin and uh, confidential transaction. Sure. So first of all, I think all of these techniques are really cool. And there's no like snobbiness about like, you know, our stuff is better. There are different trade-offs. Uh, that's all. But but here's the basic idea with mixers, with, with any kind of laundry service or any kind of tumbler. So the idea is that, you know, from time to time, a bunch of people are going to get together. They're going to put their money, their transactions together, and they're going to put them into a tumbler. And then they're going to pull their money back out. And so the idea is that, you know, if you don't know what went on inside of that, that mix, then you don't know, you can't exactly trace, you know, my transaction that went in to the transactions that came out. So if 20 people get together and do this, then, you know, I've got a little bit of anonymity. I could be any one of the 20 transactions coming out. <clears throat> so that's good. So your, your anonymity set is basically the 20 people who did this transaction. And now maybe you do it again and you do it again. And over time, your anonymity set gets bigger and bigger because there are more and more people. And so this is the basic idea behind tumbling. But the problem is, in real life, the number of people that get together on a daily basis to perform this kind of tumbling is not that big. Like if I have five hours, you know, I want my coins back in five hours, well, the only people I'm going to be mixing with are the people who happen to want to mix in that five-hour period. It could be a very small number. And a lot of them could also be, you know, 
people who are kind of shady themselves. So your your anonymity set could be a bunch of like potentially criminals or people, you know, so you don't want to be, you don't want to be doing that. So the big difference with ZK snarks is when you spend um, money using a ZK snark in a Zcash style transaction, your anonymity set is every other transaction on the network. Basically, what we're saying is it's not just a mix with the 20 people who happen to be around now. It's a mix with everyone, every single transaction that's ever happened on this network. Your transaction could be anyone's. And so basically what we can achieve is we can make your anonymity set huge. So you could have a million people that you're mixing with instead of you know 20 people. And that, I think, is the really big difference. Right. So it sounds like you're sort of maximizing the anonymity set. I don't think you can really make it much larger unless you start including uh, uh, people that aren't actually involved uh, with the cryptocurrency itself. I, I guess, so So, what are some of the drawbacks? So, uh, a common thing I hear is that uh, ZK Starks use sort of non-standard assumptions. Is that is that right? They use pairing-based crypto, which I guess people are concerned is still very young, and the knowledge of exponent uh, assumption, which I guess is still uh, some people are questioning. Yeah, I mean, they, they do use some kind of non-standard assumptions. However, if somebody was able to actually break these primitives based on, you know, essentially solving this knowledge of exponent problem, it would be a huge, huge cryptographic advance. I mean, we, we, we can show, I mean, there, there, are, there are these models in the generic group model that show that this is actually secure. And so it would be kind of a fundamental cryptographic advance if somebody was able to break it. Now that if said- were, Okay, gotcha. If someone were able to break knowledge of exponents- Yeah, I mean, this is this is not like, you know, I'm just assuming that ZK snarks are, you know, by themselves secure. I'm assuming that a pretty well-studied mathematical problem is secure, and it would require a huge breakthrough in elliptic curve crypto for it not to be secure. Now that said, it's a stronger assumption. And so using, you know, in cryptography, stronger assumptions are less good than weaker assumptions. I mean, the, the, you know, we, we, we can start with things like, you know, um, like the discrete log problem, which is uh, kind of a basic problem, is hard. And that's a very weak assumption, relatively speaking. And as you get up to things like knowledge of exponent, it gets stronger. Um, so we'd like it to be weaker, but it, it's a pretty solid assumption, I think. Right. And uh, how do you feel about the, the, the pairing-based cryptography? So I, I feel pretty good about it. There have been some results that have basically um, shown that like in a, in a theoretical setting, uh, you can take some a few bits off the security of the um, current, you know, 128-bit curves. Maybe they're only like 96-bit secure or 100-bit secure. And so I think over time, probably people are going to have to use larger uh, curves, slightly larger curves. But I don't see a break coming anytime soon. And and, and what, one of the things I should add is these things don't sneak up on you. We are not going to see a break of any of this cryptography that just comes out of the blue. What's going to happen is over 10 years, people might find, so this happened to RSA, for example. We used to think it was pretty safe to use 512-bit RSA keys. And over time, we've gotten better at breaking RSA. We've gotten better algorithms. So now we use 2048-bit keys at minimum. So this happens, but we didn't. it didn't sneak up on us. It took years and years of chipping away at the problem for things to happen like that. And I think that's what we'll see with pairing-based crypto too. So if these things are broken, I'm curious what, what, what that means for Zcash and people using the Zcash protocol. Is it just that they that they break the soundness of the proofs or does it break the zero knowledge property? Right. So one of the neat things about these ZK snarks is they're, they're statistically zero knowledge. And what that means is even if you break all of the crypto, even if the you know everything is broken, the privacy property still holds. There is no information that anybody can extract. No matter how powerful their computer is, nothing they can do is going to figure out who you are. 
And that's really nice um, because even if quantum computers come along in 30 years and people go back and they start looking at these, the ZK snarks themselves are not going to leak information. That's fantastic. So, so that's really neat. Now, you're right that if somebody breaks all the crypto, the soundness property could break. And what that means is you could actually have transactions that are not valid. People could create money, you know, have more output than they have input. Uh, but that would require a total break of the crypto. Um, not, you know, it's not, this is not something that's likely to happen. Right. So even in the worst case, it could still be used as a sort of something akin to a decentralized mix that gives you uh, essentially perfect zero knowledge. But you would have to, of course, worry about inflating currencies and stuff like that in the event that this stuff were to break. That, that's exactly. So if you have an attack in 20 years, who cares uh, in, in one sense? Because in 20 years, the transaction's long over. So it doesn't matter. But your privacy is something that lasts forever. In 20 years, somebody could care about your privacy. And so that's what we really need to, to be able to protect. And so we, we do that with ZK Snarks. Great. And so the, the one of the sort of sore spots, at least currently, with the ZK Snark technology is this uh, the requirement of the, the trusted parameter generation. Why is this trusted setup step needed? And what can we do to protect ourselves against um, a, a colluding paramgen participant? Yeah, this has been one of the big um, big concerns, and I understand why people you know are are concerned about it. I think I think it's been blown out of proportion a bit, but I think it's good because it's helped us really kind of you know address this problem. So one of the things about zk snarks, zk snarks are almost too good to be true because they let us do this amazing zero knowledge proof, and they're only a few hundred bytes long, and that means there's always going to be a trade off, and the trade off is that there is a um, very big set of public parameters. That have to be generated before anybody starts running the, you know, starts running Zcash transactions. And the worst thing about these Zcash parameters is they have to have a very specific structure, and there's no way to make them. You don't need any secrets, but there's no way to make them without, in the process of making them, having some secrets that themselves are kind of what, what Zuko calls toxic waste. You need to generate a secret key and a very big public key, and you can throw away the secret key instantly. But there's no way to make that public key without having the secret key around for at least a little while. And that secret key itself is bad because if, if you keep it around, you could use it to forge transactions. And so we thought about this a bit when we first thought about deploying uh, Zcash. The basic thought was, you know what, we'll do this with a bunch of people watching on a computer that everybody's examined. And then afterwards, we'll like get a gun and we'll shoot the computer or something. Uh, and everyone will trust that. And it turns out that people don't trust that. Even if the very trustworthy people are involved, they don't trust the idea that there's this one master secret, even if we try to destroy it publicly. So what we came around to was, well, until snarks get to the point where we don't have this toxic waste problem, what we're going to do is we're going to build a multi-party protocol. So instead of one secret, we're going to get you know 10 people, and each of those 10 people will generate their own secret. They'll work together to generate the parameters. And as long as one of those people is honest, then the secret, you know, there's no way anybody could ever reconstruct that toxic waste. As long as one person throws away their secrets, the parameters are sound. And so that's what we built. And we spent a lot of time building that protocol and running it with a group of people. And, and even in the worst case, and this is something I want to uh, stress to our listeners as often as possible. So even in the worst case where the, the so-called toxic waste got in the hands of an attacker, even then I think they couldn't de-anonymize uh, but they could forge. They could forge. Transaction. Yeah, they could forge currency, but they could never de-anonymize you using that. So that's, I mean, that that's definitely not a good thing. We don't want that to happen. Right. We've done a lot Obviously. to make sure it doesn't happen. But at the same time, 
you know, if you're relying on this privacy, you know, you're putting your life on the line even or something like that, then know that, you know, even in that case, nobody is going to be able to spy on you. So if you think about like agencies like, you know, the NSA and, and the Russian FSB, these are the kind of agencies who might be able to go after something like this and try to steal toxic waste, but there would really be no nothing in it for them because they wouldn't be able to use it to surveil you, and that's really their mission. If they wanted to destroy an online, you know, decentralized currency, they could, you know, the NSA could probably destroy Bitcoin just by running a denial of service attack against enough servers. But, you know, th there's no reason for them to go to all the trouble of trying to steal a key. So that, that's a nice feature. Imagine a world where you are directly involved in determining the future of your blockchain. A world where your investment evolves with your vote. A world where funding is a feature, not an issue. Meet Decred, a decentralized, autonomous organization that is changing the way we look at blockchains. Issues of consensus are now a thing of the past thanks to technology that forks the way holders vote. Smart contracts, Golang codebase, and a unique consensus system, all brought to you by the creators of BTC Suite. Visit decred.org for more information. Decred, rethink digital currency. Good. So we got through uh, a lot of great technical questions, and I uh, want to circle back to the the bigger picture and ask why is privacy important in transactions? I guess what I'm, I'm asking is, I, I want I want you to make an argument for privacy. Why 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 should we have privacy, even though it could, you know, protect criminals, protect potential things like terrorist financers or, and and other illicit trades? Um, why is it still important for us to have access to private transactions, even in in light of those things? So we basically live in this world where you know there are two classes of people. There there are people who have privacy, and there are people who don't. And the people who have privacy already are, among them, are many of the worst kind of people, right? Right now, if you're a criminal, you're really, you know, a well-funded, serious criminal, you probably know how to use Bitcoin in a way that preserves your privacy. And, and people have gotten very good at doing this, at shuffling coins and moving things around and, and protecting themselves. Uh, if you're a criminal who is using, you know, standard fiat currency, you've probably got an entire network of, you know, if you're a drug cartel, for example, you're probably pretty good at moving cash around in a way that makes it hard to trace. So, so these people already have privacy, and that includes, you know, very wealthy people who have actually built an entire offshore banking infrastructure to preserve their privacy. The people who don't have privacy are people like you and I. They're the kind of people who aren't going to go out of their way to protect their transaction privacy, to like, you know, to, to make sure that their their medical payments aren't, you know, public knowledge or recorded in some database. And so I really feel strongly that it's not so much that we're building a privacy infrastructure to help criminals, because criminals already have this. We're building a privacy infrastructure, we're making uh privacy available to you know, my, my parents or to people who don't want all of their financial transactions to be public knowledge. And with Bitcoin, I really want to stress that when we talk about privacy, when we talk about privacy issues, these are not the same privacy issues that you, that you have when you use your credit card. When you use your credit card, at very least, only the banks know who you paid money to and maybe the U.S. government if they have a subpoena. But with Bitcoin, your privacy is, you know, you know your information is potentially available to all kinds of people marketers, you know, criminal organizations, people who you don't want to know this stuff. 
And so when we talk about protecting your privacy in the world of Bitcoin, it's not just against governments and law enforcement, it's against a lot of people who you know should not have access to your information. And so that's really why this work is so important. Yeah, that's great. And could you speak a little bit to the uh, selective disclosure? So it's possible to have, uh, using Zcash, it's possible to have all of these protections that you just mentioned and, and still be able to selectively disclose information to, for example, regulators if you so choose or business partners or et cetera. Right. I mean, what, one of the really beautiful things about building a privacy preserving currency is that it's easy to make it less private. Right? If you want to give up information, if you have absolute privacy, if you have strong privacy, it's really an easy problem to weaken your privacy, to say, okay, you know, even though this is private, I'm now going to tell you and prove to you that I made this transaction. But going the other way is really hard. If I have a system that's not private and I want to bolt on privacy, that's a very, very challenging problem. And so we really focused on making the system as private as possible. If people want to selectively disclose, hey, I have this much money, I made this transaction, I did this, that's trivial. There's no problem with that. And we've even you know, done some work, some research work on systems that would allow you to add uh, additional elements to the zero-knowledge proof. So if you wanted to build a private version of Zcash where you could prove that you paid tax, for example, or you did something else, or you know, even allow governments to trace you if you wanted that feature, those kind of things are possible. It's not part of Zcash, but you can do a lot of things to, to weaken privacy once you have strong privacy. And what about a fungibility? How does, how does privacy of transaction relate to the fund fungibility of currency? Well, I mean, one of the things we've seen in Bitcoin is that not every coin is created equal, right? There are coins that you can't sell. If somebody, somebody slips you certain coins and you go to an exchange, even if you're innocent, you might find out that these coins are not saleable because they're the, the result of some heist or somebody stole some coins. Um, you know, there, there's also the concern that as these um, blockchain tracing companies start to get off the ground to get more successful, there'll be essentially different classes of coins. There'll be coins that are free and clear and you can sell them because somebody has traced their history and knows they're legit. There'll be coins that, you know, you might not even know, but there's kind of second class citizens where you got stuck with some coins that are harder to sell. And then eventually there'll be coins that you can't sell at all. And this is the problem. Once you have a currency where, you know, everybody knows the history of every coin, you can get stuck with these kind of different currency classes. Whereas if you have a private currency, then you don't have this problem because nobody can trace anything. Every coin is exactly the same. And with, you know, the idea of fungibility and I mean, can you see this idea of like blacklisting coins and then people are almost forced to run all their money constantly through mixers like down the road? And, and you know, maybe it's six jumps away from, I guess, being a part of a mixer and then it goes to nine and then a hundred and, and this kind of escalation gets out of hand where there's almost the entire currency is, is useless. Like, could you see that kind of scenario uh, playing out? So I think that would be a really bad outcome. And I think the worst part of that is probably the first sets of coins to be blacklisted would be coins that had gone through mixers. And so basically this would be an attack on mixers. You'd, you'd just have the exchanges maybe being legally compelled to say, hey, if a coin has been through a mixer recently, you're not going to be able to sell it. And uh, you know, at that point, mixers become useless. And the problem is you could get away with that in Bitcoin because as long as a large percentage of the Bitcoin user base doesn't use mixers, nobody would be really harmed by that. And you know, life could go on except for those people who wanted privacy. And so you could actually separate people who wanted privacy 
from the rest of the herd and get away with it. Whereas if you have a currency that essentially mandates privacy where it's built in, it's much harder to put those kind of enforcements in place. So bringing this out of the abstract and a bit more into the um, practical implementation. So when this uh, the, this trusted setup ceremony uh, took place, uh, I think uh, you had six people involved. And uh, one of them was Peter Todd, and he wrote a, a it was a great, I think it was a pretty hilarious write-up about him, uh, what was it, a cypherpunk desert bus? Yep. And yeah, and you know how he's driving around the uh, desolate Canadian highways with a compute node wrapped in a Faraday cage. It was, just, it was a fantastic story. It's a good read. I, I, well, we should probably link to it in the show notes. One of the things he mentioned in the beginning, there were a lot of criticisms. And uh, there, there were a, a couple that I wanted to address and, and hear what uh, you have to say about them. One, of the, one thing he mentioned was he criticized the number of bits of security. He wasn't very specific. I assume he's uh, talking about the underlying curve that's being used. Could you speak to that? He was saying that he had heard things like that it might be as weak as 80 bits of security. Whereas I'm, uh, I'm hearing 96 or something like that from uh, you and Zuko. Could you speak a little bit to what he's referring to there? Sure. Uh, so so there, there have been some advances in cryptanalysis. These are incredibly theoretical uh, kind of advances where, you know, sometime in 10 to 20 years, somebody might be able to build a machine that takes a year to, you know, solve one problem in a curve. So we're not talking about anything that really matters. So, so to give you an example, by the way, a 1,024-bit RSA key gives you about 80 bits of what we call symmetric equivalent security. And the current pairings that we're using, if these theoretical advances pan out, I believe the general analysis is they provide about 96 bits of security, maybe 100 bits. So these are very strong. Uh, even if you set up a supercomputer center to start cracking them today, you know, it would take you maybe a year, maybe multiple years, and nobody even knows if these theoretical advances would let you do that. So, so that's really unlikely. And so, so just, just to address that right off the bat, I, I think that one of the things you should take for granted is that in the next year or so, maybe less, there will, there will probably be an upgrade to those curve parameters to make sure they're at the 128-bit level. So if anybody was planning to go build a supercomputer center to worry about this curve, you know, they better do it in the next two, few months because it'll be too late. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. So Peter Todd is a really interesting guy. And he's kind of a crazy person. I mean that like in the best possible way. I, I've worked with him a lot. Um, his his whole story is really worth reading. Uh, the the traveling around, moving from hotel to hotel, doing the secure computation in a van. Uh, I can't believe he actually got it to work. Um, it, it's really neat. But I think it kind of you know it points out exactly how difficult it is. If you were to go and you know remember in order to compromise this secure parameter generation ceremony. You have to get all of the six people who are involved. You have to compromise their secrets of all six people. Um, that's really hard. Maybe you could do it for one person. Maybe if you had a lot of resources and millions of dollars, you could do it for two. I really think it would be hard to simultaneously do it to six people, especially when one of them is Peter Todd traveling around in a van and you know working off of a burner cell phone. So I think you know definitely I love that people are paranoid and they, they want things to be as secure as possible. I don't think that there's any real probability that those those secrets uh, were compromised during that ceremony. Right. I think it's highly unlikely. And I, and I also, uh, I agree with your earlier assessment that the people that would even be in the realm of capable of pulling that off don't have the motivation to do so, in particular because it can't break the, the privacy guarantees, which is sort of the whole point. And the worst they could do is print currency and 
you know, frankly, they have other people that can do that for them and, and more well-used currencies. So I don't think that we have to worry about that. I agree. Exactly. Well, and back to the ceremony, I just, uh, I know you briefly said that you guys had kind of been working on this problem for a while, but I mean, like how much time did you guys spend developing the protocol to be able to generate these secrets for multiple parties? I mean, was it something you guys worked on for months, uh, years? Oh, wow. Um, because like the complexity of, of the trusted setup or the ceremony, however you want to refer to it, is very complex and it's, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. So I'm just really curious, like the amount of time and dedication your team and the people that were involved in kind of developing this, this uh, method. So if I remember correctly, we started writing the paper back in like summer of 2014. And so that gives you an idea. Like we've been working on this for a while. We we had an academic paper that got peer reviewed. Um, then we actually did a complete, you know, production grade implementation. And uh, Sean Bow at Zcash did a lot of that. Uh, and it was just really, really good code. I mean, it's amazing. I don't think anybody's ever run uh, a protocol this complex uh, using multi-party computation. So it's, it's really a neat thing that we actually got it to work and it's it's all working in production. So yeah, it's a, it was a, the product of a lot of thought and I don't think it's over either. I think, um, you know, you should expect, you know, in the next year or two, there'll probably be a, a larger run to generate new parameters. I mean, I think, I think this is one of the big mistakes people make is they think that everything is static and that, you know, everything is done. But the idea behind this protocol is to keep improving. You know, we ran it with six people, let's run it with 20 people. Let's see if we can keep doing better. Um, so I think that uh, you should expect more ongoing work. I understand that there's work being done by the folks at Skipper Labs, and, I, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could, if you know much about this. They're, they're trying to develop smarts that don't require this trusted setup operation. Like my understanding is that the situation that people were envisioning when they were, when they were thinking about these ZK Starks was like, was not the cryptocurrency setting originally, right? It's like a more classic two-party situation. The verifier is in control of the so-called toxic waste, and so there's not really much of a concern that the that the prover may have access to it. But in the case of a cryptocurrency setting, you have everyone being a prover and everyone being a verifier. Uh, my understanding is that ZK Snarks were sort of envisioned with a different scenario in mind, and so I imagine that out the gate there wasn't much effort put into trying to get rid of this toxic waste problem and maybe it sounds like now that there there is more research being put into that and I was wondering if you could speak to uh, progress that's being made there. So I mean this is actually one of the coolest things about this project, right? So I, I'm an academic and I think about a lot of boring academic things but you know what's neat about this is we have something that's in the real world that says you know this is how people are actually going to use these and we can prove this is how actually people are going to use these technologies because you know we built a system and people are using it. And so that's neat, like from an academic, boring academic perspective. Um, so yeah, that's exactly right. So you know, you have people writing papers and thinking about the problems they think are interesting, and then all of a sudden, the real world is actually using the technology, and it changes what people are interested in working on because it shows them that you know this is what's important. So I think um, building snarks that don't have this uh, toxic waste is now an actual well-motivated problem, and there's been some progress on it. I don't think we're quite there. But what's really neat about it is that you know the way Zcash approaches using these snarks is we plan to upgrade. So if something better comes along that doesn't have toxic waste and it's as efficient, good enough to use in the system, we'll replace it. We'll put that in as the next version of Zcash. Um, if a new snark technology comes along that's you know ten times as fast, uh, we'll use that. And I think that's that kind of upgrade is very much on the path of what Zcash is going to do. So I think you know treat this as version one and expect that there are going to be 
nothing but you know improvements going forward. That's fantastic. And I think the the last question I have um, goes back to another um, one of Peter Todd's criticisms early early in that write up of his, and it was a scalability concerns. What scalability concerns does Zcash have that it inherited from Bitcoin, and are are there any uh, concerns in addition to that? So I mean, there's been a big argument, of course, which I gosh I won't get into uh, about the scalability of Bitcoin, and Zcash is based essentially on the Bitcoin code base. Um, has larger blocks, but I, I mean that, that's it basically. There's no um, there's no real difference. So any any scalability concerns you have about Bitcoin kind of translate over into the Zcash world as well. So that that's simple enough. Um, there and, and obviously people have different opinions on that. And I, I I don't really have strong opinions. We'll, we'll see what develops in Bitcoin, and we'll try to work with that. Um, we have spent some time developing uh, off chain anonymous transaction systems, kind of like Lightning, but private. We have a system called Bolt that we're going to hopefully get uh, into the Zcash ecosystem in the next year or so. So so there's been work on that. The biggest Zcash-specific scaling problem I can think of is the serial number database. So one of the things that happens when you actually make a Zcash transaction, an anonymous transaction, is it includes serial numbers. And those serial numbers have to be recorded. This is how we prevent double spending. So if you try to spend the same coins, you'll end up producing the same serial numbers. And so what we have is basically an ever-growing database of spent serial numbers. And that does create some scalability problems. I think this is more of an engineering challenge than a, you know, invent a whole new system challenge. I mean, we, what will probably happen is that from time to time, we'll just kind of reset and we'll say, okay, there's a, there's a new tree with new transactions, maybe transactions won't go back forever. They'll they'll reset every couple of years, and so the anonymity set will be limited maybe to the transactions made in the last two years, which is still a huge anonymity set, um, and that solves some of the scalability problems. There may be other ways to do it, um, but I think we're still going to have a huge anonymity set compared to systems that that don't have this. Sure, that's fantastic. So uh, that's all I have, Matt. Do you have any other questions? How does how does your university feel about working on projects like this? So from my point of view, uh, nobody's given me a hard time about it. You know, basically, I, the way I treat it is: look, we created this thing and we got people to use it, and it had an impact. And so academically, I think that's a really good thing. I mean, a lot of the papers that academics write go nowhere. People say we built the system and nobody ever does anything with it. So the fact that Zcash is actually a thing is is a really huge deal, and I think that's good for everybody. Um, we did have a, a thing where a, a, a gentleman named uh, E.J. Fagan, I think his name was, wrote this really scathing article in Business Insider a few years ago that basically said systems like Zero Coin and Zero Cash are evil. And Johns Hopkins shouldn't be supporting these researchers because people are going to use this to, you know, poach rhinos and, you know, enable child sexual trafficking. You know, this research needs to be cut off. And Johns Hopkins really got behind us and said, no, this is wrong. Like, we don't stop research because of this kind of thing. So I was really happy about that. And do you see, uh, like, Zcash being around as, as its own protocol for a long time? Or do you kind of see it eventually migrating into Bitcoin or? Yeah, so I mean, I'll be honest, like, you know, I, I, I love that Zcash is a thing and I love that, you know, it, it's going well and I think it's great. But, you know, for me, like people using this technology is actually what I care about. And so it's kind of interesting when you see people forking Zcash or talking about using Zcash technologies and other systems, like that's not a bad thing. I think that's great, like go for it do it. And actually, I'm really happy that Zuko has taken the attitude that like all of this stuff is open source, 
completely wide open code. When somebody forks Zcash, he doesn't get upset. He says, that's awesome. Go for it. We're like really supportive. And so, so it's really cool. Like I, I, I think if everybody starts using this technology, then the world is a better place. You know, to finish up, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to discuss for the listeners? Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting to see how the world is going to respond to this. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm really amazed that it's taken off and people are actually using it. I, I think that we're going to learn a lot about privacy uh, and how governments respond to privacy technologies in the next few years. I, I think it may not be good. It may not be bad. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But for me, you know, just just seeing how these technologies get get dealt with out in the world is going to be an education, and I'm really kind of interested in you know being on the front lines and seeing what happens. That's fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. Uh, we really appreciate your time and um, definitely look forward to having you back on the show. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Today's show has been made possible by the support of our sponsor, GPU Source. Want to mine Zcash, Bitcoin, or other cryptocurrencies? GPU Source provides turnkey solutions. Check them out, gpusource.com. Well, thank you for listening to episode one of the Zcash Review. Next time on the Zcash Review, we'll have an in-depth conversation with Zuko Wilcox, the CEO of the Zcash Company, and author and Bitcoin evangelist Andreas Antonopoulos. We'll be discussing the design of the parameter generation ceremony and the great lengths undergone to ensure that the trusted setup was uncompromised. Because remember, if it was, it would allow an attacker to create an unlimited amount of Zcash without anyone realizing it. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.